show. I'm Max Reaper, the editor of Royals Review. And with baseball on pause, we have some more free time. So we thought we'd take a look back at some classic baseball films. And here to join me to review some of those films is Jeremy Greco, better known on our, our side as Hokias. Jeremy, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. Well, you've been doing a pretty good job of reviewing movies on our side in a regular series on Saturdays on your regular Hawk Talk uh, post. So I thought we'd take this opportunity to talk about some of these films a little more in depth in the podcast, since you and I, I think, are both, uh, at least, uh, you at least, I think, are kind of a film buff, and I'm at least a baseball film buff. So I thought we'd begin our series with the 1989 film Major League, which I think if you asked, if you polled baseball fans, or maybe even the general population, like what their favorite baseball movie is, I think this would definitely be in the top three, if not the number one spot. It just seems to be like one of the most beloved baseball films, uh, perhaps of all time. Absolutely. And and from my perspective, it it really started a boom um, in, in 1989 through the, through the early to mid-90s of just baseball movies all over the place because it, it was it did so well and it was such a popular popular movie yeah there there'd been some i mean i think in the golden age of hollywood i think there were a couple of baseball films like uh i think there was a film version of damn yankees i believe mm-hmm. and then angels the original angels in the outfield but then there was kind of a dry spell through the 60s and 70s there, there may have been a couple of films but certainly nothing memorable or something nothing that's on my my radar other than maybe bad news bears which is about little league Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the eighties, you had the natural come out in 1984. And then the year before major league came out was eight men out, which is actually an excellent film by John sales, right. um, which also starred Charlie Sheen, who we'll see is also in major league. But, but then I think major league, you're right. That really touched off, um, kind of a spate of baseball films, little big league rookie of the year, angels in the outfield remake. And- and I think the way you can tell that that Major League is what did it is is a lot of the tropes, a lot of the things that you see in Major League that just keep popping back up in, in the other baseball movies. Yeah, and before they had been kind of more dramatic films. Mm-hmm. And Major League said, "Well, baseball is a silly, fun game. Let's let's do a silly, fun movie about baseball." Absolutely, and it was Absolutely. very popular. Uh, so yeah, it did kind of touch things off. So. Let's talk about Major League. It's uh, released in 1989. Uh, Interesting fact, it was the first movie, R-rated movie, that I ever saw in the theater. I would have been about almost almost 11 years old, and my dad, I remember my dad took me uh, to go see it because he really wanted to see it. And it's an R-rated movie, but it's it's just because it, there's a lot of bad language, a lot of yeah. SHs, yeah. a lot of F-bombs. It is it is a weak R-rated movie, if there is such a thing. Uh, but as far as, like, there's no violence, obviously. And then right. there, you know, there's no nudity, really. You see a couple images of, like, naked women in magazines and, and, a, and a, a cardboard cutout. Uh, but nothing, nothing. I don't think you feel very uncomfortable with a preteen being exposed mm-hmm. to. So, um, so yeah, I, that was my first R-rated film that I got to see in the theater. Uh, it cost eleven million dollars to make at the time. It grossed forty-nine million, which I think at that time you considered that a pretty modest hit. Um, yeah, generally, it certainly reached the, the the psyche, I think, of the American population. Yeah, generally, uh, the rule of thumb is that if a movie makes more than twice what it what it costs, then you're 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 doing good. Yeah. Because you gotta once you account for what it costs, and then you gotta account for the um, advertising, and then anything beyond that is is profit. Well, I'm kind of surprised it costs so little to make because you have some decent names, and we'll get to the cast in just a second. But Charlie Sheen obviously um, was probably a, a pretty big name at that point. You had to get licensing from Major League Baseball, which I'm sure that 
took some negotiations because it wasn't exactly portraying Major League Baseball in, in like a respectful, the respectful <laughs> right that I, I'm sure they're used to. And they had used, you know, Major League Stadium. So I, it, I'm sure it probably cost a decent amount, but but they'd certainly recoup their money. And um, they, they, they saved some money by, you know, being uh, being a baseball film, it's not going to have the special effects that right. a lot of the, the big blockbusters these days have. So that helps too. Well, the movie was a, it came from the mind of David S. Ward. He had been a screenwriter and he was a longtime Indians fan. Uh, and he said that he really wanted to see the Indians finally get a win. And that was kind of the, the, the impetus behind writing this movie. Uh, he was a pretty accomplished screenwriter. At least he had won an Oscar for writing The Sting, which is an excellent movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had never really directed. Uh, he had directed just one movie before. And I guess he really wanted to see his characters uh, come to life and kind of be in control of the whole films. And, and he, so he got the directing, directing gig. Uh, later on in his career, he would write uh, Sleepless in Seattle, King Ralph. And he would direct the college football movie, The Program. Uh, but let's talk about the cast for a second. Um, it's an interesting cast. Like in baseball, you know, when you, when you assemble a team, you've got some rising stars, but you've also got some old veterans. And I kind of feel like they kind of did that with the cast as well. Oh, yeah. Um, I guess we'll start with Charlie Sheen. Um, I kind of feel like he was a big star at this point in his, in, his, in his career. He'd already done Platoon and Wall Street, and he had just filmed Young Guns. I think Young Guns maybe came out that year as well. So... Uh, he was kind of the big name carrying this film at the time, right? Yeah, uh, probably so. Um, I, I I certainly can't think of anyone else that that looking at this cast list that, oh man, that was that that guy's the big draw. Um, it almost it almost does feel a little bit like you were saying, like they just kind of went out and got some some has-beens and some never wers <laughs> to to try and fill out their movie cast about a, a bunch of has-beens and never wers. Yeah, and Sheen was a, a big baseball fan. He had, um, I believe, pitched in or tried out for a, a college team or, or tried yeah, to play in high school. Um, when I was doing some reading, and it, he he was a he was a fairly good high school pitcher, um, and he actually had a scholarship offer, according to what I read, from Kansas oh. <laughs> to to play baseball for them. Um, and he ended up turning it down, but um, his fastball uh, could reach uh, eighty miles per hour, which made it a little bit easier for them to simulate the uh, the the fastballs that he throws in the movie because it, it's easier to make 80 look like 100 than it is 60. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, he certainly, uh, I think, beats out Tim Robbins as far as believability uh, yeah. for, for, for an actor on the mound. But, yeah, he really, he really does hold his own as a baseball player. And, you know, he like I said, he, I mentioned Eight Men Out. He had played uh, a, a baseball player in Eight Men Out as well. So he certainly played, uh, you know, he'd played the part before. And I guess... When he when he got the script, I guess he just jumped at the opportunity to play baseball because it kind of been a dream come true for him. He'd always kind of imagine what his life would be like as a professional player, and, and this is his chance to kind of do that. So, um, yeah, he definitely held his own, I th- and I think he was kind of the draw at this time. But it's a pretty good ensemble cast. You also have Tom Berenger, who had co-starred with Sheen in Platoon, the Vietnam War pick, uh, and he had done some decent movies in the 80s, like The Big Chill I think was his big movie. Uh, didn't really do a whole lot afterwards. Uh, you know, he's had a decent, uh, nice long career kind of, uh, finding work, but, um, mostly in kind of B movies that, or, or Westerns or that, um, that you won't see in your, your big multiplex. Uh, you yeah. got Corbin, uh, Corbin Bernstein, or I guess we'd say they are Charlie Sheen, obviously is Ricky Vaughn. Uh, Tom mm-hmm. Berenger is a catcher, Jake Taylor. And then right. we have Corbin Bernstein, Bernson, uh, as Roger Doran, kind of the big free agent, uh, third baseman who, uh, he had been a TV star at that point on TV's L.A. Law. Hasn't really done much since Major League. Um, 
and so that was this is kind of his jump into a movie career. It didn't really pan out. And then you have an up and coming uh, young actor named Wesley Snipes, who to that point hadn't really done much. He'd been in Michael Jackson's music music video for Bad. He had done the the football film Wildcats with Goldie Hawn, but he hadn't really done much. He was kind of unknown quantity, and he kind of is the uh, surprise star. Kind of steals a lot of the scenes he's in. Yeah, um, everybody likes uh, the quirky, speedy guy, right? Uh, Royals fans should be pretty familiar with that idea with Gerard Dyson, and um, so he he brings that in, and he he even has a cool moment. Um, his kind of his introduction in the movie, um, to, as a baseball player, is they're they're doing some sprints, uh, warming up in spring training, right? And he comes out there and, 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 and in his pajamas, everybody else is in their spikes and uniforms. He's in his pajamas and he, he starts when the other guys are halfway to the finish line and he beats them both and, uh, and just kind of shows off just how fast he is. And it just seems, Oh, that's so cool. And then, you know, uh, a Royals fan it, it comes, I think it comes down to that whole underdog thing. Um, that again, Royals fans, but all baseball fans are really kind of familiar with where, um, as far as this is a team of underdogs, here's a guy who didn't even get invited to camp and he somehow kind of BS'd his way onto the team and, and ends up being the opening day leadoff hitter for a major league team. So that's, it's even just at the very beginning of the movie, that's kind of a fun underdog story. Yeah. And he, you do some other sports movies later on, like um, white men can't jump and he mm-hmm. would become a baseball player again in the fan starring with Robert De Niro. Mm-hmm. He, so he's been in a couple of sports movies is it just me? He really doesn't. St- he looks like he should be athletic, but his baseball scenes aren't great. And I guess uh-uh. David Ward was saying that they had to film all of his running in slow motion because he actually wasn't a very fast person at all. <laughs> so, yeah. So and they, that's, I guess that's they also couldn't film him throwing at all because <laughs> of his throwing was terrible. And and if you just watch him, you watch him go up to a plate, and the way he wiggles his hips is fun. But I don't think that would work for for any kind of real getting ready to swing a baseball bat kind of thing. Yeah. So he apparently he was as good as acting at baseball as he was at ba- uh, acting at basketball because it, <laughs> pretty clear he wasn't a very good basketball player. Why <laughs> can't jump either? Uh, so I guess that's just a testament of what a great actor he is. Um, so he's Wesley, he's Willie Mays Hayes, the speedy mm-hmm. center fielder. We have Dennis Haysbert, who uh, at that time was kind of a kind of a that guy in a lot of TV shows. He, I mean, I didn't realize he'd been around forever. Uh, oh yeah, uh, he's, he was in Laverne and Shirley, Incredible Hulk, Galactica, Buck Rogers, The White Shadow, A Team, Growing Pains. Uh, he so he he'd kind of just jumped around uh, making cameos everywhere. Gets a spot here as uh, Pedro Serrano, the big slugging right fielder. Of course, we know Haysbird now as the as, as I guess President Palmer on Twenty Four or the mm-hmm. Allstate guy. Um, yep. And of course, he in a, he did another baseball movie as well, playing a slugger in Mister Baseball. So right, uh, uh, you know, he kind of fills a much more a, normal slugger in Mister Baseball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he, he kind of fills that role of like the big, I guess, hulking slugger pretty well. So funny, funny story about Dennis Haysbert though. Um, when I was watching, I was rewatching this movie yesterday, uh, in preparation for this conversation and I was watching it on Philo, which is a TV replacement app. And so I was getting all the commercials and every commercial break, they gave me an Allstate commercial. <laughs> and hey, everyone was like, oh, it's the Allstate guy. It's the Allstate guy. And I was just like, and Pedro Serrano and like 500. Okay. Yeah. He's the Allstate guy. Yeah, and I, I, you know, they they chose him because he looked like a big, big athlete. But yeah. I guess he was a legit hitter in the scene where he hits the dramatic home run, which we'll talk about later. 
uh, they said he, he legit parked it out of County Stadium <laughs> down right down the line, and everyone went nuts when he hit it out. So he, he, he can hold his own on the baseball field. Um, we have Chelsea Ross, who I, who I think is a that guy when you see mm-hmm. him uh, appear in lots of TV shows and movies. Uh, he plays uh, the old uh, Harris, uh, the old Harris. pitcher who's been around forever. And I guess Chelsea Ross was a pretty good athlete back in the day. He actually pitched at Southwest Texas State, and he was cast in this movie because they wanted to find people who actually could look like they played baseball. And he went out there and threw a couple curveballs, and they're like, "Yeah, you got the you got the gig." Uh, now he was pretty old when this movie was filmed. He was like forty-seven years old, which that's pretty old for a baseball player. But yeah, um, you know, if you're supposed to be like a Gaylord Perry spitball guy, that kind of makes some sense. Yeah. Yeah, they absolutely gave him the uh, the perfect role for for a man of his age to try and play, where he was with all the different uh, creams and substances he was using to try and <laughs> and make sure he could stay with it. Yeah, uh, James Gammon uh, is manager Lou Brown. He's like a long veteran of of westerns. He started his career back in the '60s. Actually, st- began his career as a cameraman, and then uh, because of his gravelly voice, I think he really carved out a a niche in westerns and. But I think Lou Brown is kind of his iconic role. I, I think he, I believe he passed away a couple years ago, and Lou Brown was was kind of the character everyone talked about when he passed. Um, you have Charlie Cyphers as as GM Charlie Donovan. He's uh, he did a lot of TV work up to that point. Uh, I knew you have, I'd seen him before. What's that? <laughs> I knew I'd seen him before. Yeah, he kind of appeared a little bit of everything. I guess he was in the movie Halloween, but I can't really say I've seen him in, in many or at least recognize him in many things. He's kind of a guy that blends in the background. Mm-hmm. The love interest is uh, we should mention Renee Russo. Yes. Uh, she plays Lynn. Uh, this this was just her second movie. I guess she was a. I didn't know she was a supermodel up to that point, and this is kind of her first real movie that she had filmed. And I guess it was pretty difficult for her. She didn't know that you had to take all these, you know, do these numerous takes and stand out there for hours and hours at a time. Oh man! But uh, but I guess Tam, Tom Berenger said she handled it really well, and and a lot of those scenes they had to do for for long takes. Uh, she did a pretty good job, and she ended up carving a really nice acting career out of it. Yeah, she's she's um she's pretty good in this movie for for not for coming into it not knowing what she's gonna be doing. I I can only imagine that if I showed up to a movie set and and realized like how grueling the process could be only as I arrived there, how um disheartening and and frustrating that could be, and how how worn out that could immediately make me. She's I was kind of uh, I went back and watched this movie last week, and I was. I was really impressed with like how similar she's just looked through the age. I mean, she's aged very well, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, she's of course strikingly beautiful, um, but and, and and a terrific actress too. I mean, some of her, uh, I love Thomas Crown Affair is one of my one of my favorite movies, and uh, you know, she's, yeah. she's done a really good job carving out a nice career for herself. Uh, Margaret Whitten, I guess, is the only other significant female role in this movie. She plays owner Rachel Phelps. Um, I only really know her from being the the in the Secret of My Success. She's the one that pursues michael j fox's career she had a pretty short career but she i guess she did some tv and theater afterwards and uh ended up being the president of her own film company uh but apparently she she was one of the biggest baseball fans out of all the cast she actually knew more about baseball than a lot of the guys and she was actually (laughs) a yankee season ticket holder so it's kind of ironic she's the one that's kind of portrayed as maybe um uh you know being not not interested in winning when she was actually the one that probably cared a lot most about winning because she was the yankee season ticket holder right and then finally, we got Bob Euchre, who plays uh, broadcaster Harry Doyle. Euchre, of course, is a former Major League player for six seasons. Uh, he re- uh, appeared on The Tonight Show a lot with Johnny Carson and kind of carved out a niche as a, a baseball funny man. And that he kind of parlayed that into a TV and movie career that included, of course, the 80s sitcom Mr. Belvedere. 
Uh, but he's also actually been a, an actual broadcaster for the Milwaukee Brewers for many years. And uh, so they, they based on his funny Miller Lite commercials and his, his work on, um, I guess, uh, Mr. Belvedere and, and his broadcasting, or I guess the, the director, David Ward, didn't even know he, he did work for the Brewers. Uh, so they cast him as a, a, a real broadcaster and uh, in the movie. And I, I guess he kind of made up his own lines as he went. Like they just kind of told him, just, just go, just say, just be funny. And he, he had lived a lot of that stuff on the spot. And, uh, yeah, and it, it's pretty, one of the most memorable lines, I think. Even it, whatever, whatever's funny is almost certainly ad libbed by him. According to everything I've, I've read and seen, he's just, he, he's, he's just a funny guy. And he, he knows how to call a baseball game, obviously. Cause he, he's been a real broad, a real baseball broadcaster, even though they didn't know him when they hired him. So, um, you know, they just tell him, you know, I, I feel like you could just tell somebody like that. Uh, here's, here's the action. Just, you know, call it like you would if you know the team wasn't going to fire you for saying something ridiculous well and i think that that kind of is part of why this movie is so beloved is you know you have when you have a baseball guy making jokes about baseball i think it rings really true mm-hmm. to baseball mm-hmm. fans you know it's absolutely like, um that's part of why i think it resonates so well whereas Hopes if like, you had a comedy writer who didn't know that much about baseball they would probably make a joke that was funny but you'd be like well that doesn't really fit you know yeah it gives it gives it a real sense of authenticity when the guy who's relaying the action to you is someone who knows what he's talking about and 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 especially with the ability to ad lib, they gave him. I don't know. I can't say that for sure. He fixed some some errors that they might have had, but it wouldn't surprise me if if I found out at some point that they were like, and this happens. He's like, well, that doesn't really happen in baseball, so we should do this instead. You know, yeah, something like that. And I think it helped that Ward himself was a baseball fan. I guess he wrote yeah. either all the movie or most of the movie himself. So you didn't have. It- uh, you know, someone who didn't know a lot about baseball. Cause I think that's where a lot of these 90 movies that you talk about mm-hmm. kind of fall short a little bit. Like rookie of the year. I remember there's just some glaring plot holes that don't make any sense to mm-hmm. a sophisticated baseball fan. You know, someone that knows a lot about baseball, whereas major league, I think it pretty much, you know, they're being silly, but it, it's pretty plausible that could happen. I mean, yeah. I mean, he actually based Rachel Phelps on twins owner, Carl Polat, who was very stingy in the seventies and eighties and was always threatening to move the twins somewhere else. And and certainly, you know a lot of owners have been like that throughout the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that sense of authenticity, I think, is is from the writing, from the from the 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 broadcaster, and um, you know, like you said, from from Margaret Witten as the owner, and and we talked about some of these guys have done other baseball movies, both before and after, and and some of these guys had played baseball. Uh, the the two pitchers, Chelsea Ross and and Charlie Sheen. So the, there's a bunch of, there's a lot of baseball knowledge in this movie. And, and one of the biggest uh, things that writers run into, it seems is they don't have enough direct experience with the, the topic that they're, they're writing about. And you end up with things that just don't make sense to people who do know what they're, they're talking about. So yeah, it, it really all just kind of comes together and for this movie in that way with all the, that knowledge combined. Well, let's go over the plot a little bit and we can kind of, pick it apart, <laughs> pick it apart from, from a baseball <laughs> standpoint, but also just, uh, you know, give me your thoughts or, or, or what, what, what you remember about the film. But uh, the movie starts out, first of all, the, the score too, I think is fantastic. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's of course, legendary uh, film composer, uh, Randy Newman. And mm-hmm. that opening scene, opening sequence where they film around Cleveland and it's his, his song, uh, Burn On Big River. Uh, it just really fits like Cleveland so well because it's kind of a frumpy song about um, it's kind of about civic pride, but because it's about the it's about an actual ex- thing that happened. The Cuyahoga River 
com- you know, spontaneously combusted and set, set itself on fire because it was so polluted at one point. And so it's kind of making fun of that, but also kind of, I think, pointing to the civic pride of Clevelanders that they kind of know their town is dumpy, but it's their town, damn it. And they live there and they have a lot of pride in it. Uh, I And I, I'm sure that that is a, a feeling that that many cities feel. Mm-hmm. I bet I bet you could find Can- Kansas Cityans who are like, yeah, Kansas City isn't isn't L.A., but. You know, it's my town, right? Kind of feeling, um, and and other all all kinds of cities probably have that. So that that um, yeah. Sorry, go on. I was no, just no, trying it's, to. It's because like an inferior, <laughs> that chip on your shoulder is like you can't mm-hmm. say that about my city. Only I can say that about my exactly, city. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was gonna say though, uh, when this movie came out, like my dad did a lot of business in Cleveland, and uh, he would go to Indians game all, all the time. And of course, back then they played in seventy thousand seat uh, municipal stadium, which is cavernous. And only mm-hmm. a couple thousand people would show up, so he, you know, he just he'd be one of just a couple dozen people it seemed like at the games. But you know, he did so much business there. At one point, we were going to move to Cleveland. Like we kind of said, okay, look, we're going to move, and we're moving to Cleveland. And I remember telling my baseball coach that, and he laughed. He's like, Cleveland, <laughs> Cleveland's a joke. You're living on the lake, a mistake on the lake. Uh, and fortunately, we ended up not moving to Cleveland. But uh, but yeah, that was kind of the. The, the the thing about Cleveland at the time, this is before their downtown revitalization. This is when the Indians, and this is what I watched this with my kid last week. I had to explain to him, like the Indians used to be really really bad. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, like they've been to three World <laughs> Series in the last twenty five years. So you kind of forget that. But from nineteen fifty five to nineteen eighty nine, when this movie came out, really past that a little bit, they were not even close to competing for anything. Like they were just a dreadful dreadful franchise. And, you know, Joe Posnanski grew up in Cleveland. He's written so eloquently about this. But they were just laughably bad for, like, three decades. And uh, and I, I think we kind of forget that now. But uh, but I think they they kind of capture that right from the get-go with the spinning newspaper montage of, like, look, this is a really bad team. They've been a bad team for a long time. And it kind of – I think it sets the stage really well. So we begin with uh, the, the opening the, – kind of the first real scene we get is we, we find out the owner of the Indians has died – uh, he has left the team to his wife, who is a former showgirl named Rachel Phelps. Uh, she moves. She kind of assembles the first meeting, I guess, of the off season. Although they say it's only two weeks before spring training, so I'm like, they haven't like done anything all off season. Like, th- you know, they haven't assembled any players. Uh, I guess we just have to go with it. But they've lost their two best players of free agency. They've been finishing, in, of course, near the cellar, and she wants to kind of change directions. She wants. She brings. She gives the the board a list of players she wants to invite to spring training of course they haven't heard of a lot of them and that has the memorable line this guy here is dead <laughs> so cross him off which is <laughs> oh, fantastic I, that's, it's uh that's really it's a great great moment in the movie and it really sets the tone for everything that's going to come after that because it's like just the way she responds to him like his delivery is good but the way she responds to him well cross him off <laughs> we're going forward it's just one of many quotable lines in the movie, mm-hmm. and I and I what's I think it's so quotable because first of all it's funny, but second of all mm-hmm. they cover like all aspects of baseball. So you can use this line when like your own team is talking about bringing guys into spring training. You mm-hmm. can talk about you know Jesus Christ can't hit a curveball whenever you have like a, a guy talking about religion, or you have a guy that can't hit a curveball. You know, there's all sorts of quotable lines that can apply to any aspect of baseball, and I think that's why. Uh, we we tend to quote this movie so much, and mm-hmm. it's just really funny too. Um, yeah. 
So, you know, she's got her list of Motley, uh, her Motley crew of baseball players, and we start seeing them assembled. Jake Taylor's down in Mexico. He uh, is a former all-star with Boston. I, I think, I believe he was supposed to be loosely based on Carlton Fisk, but mm-hmm. um, he had been, he had been in Cleveland before, but it kind of fallen out of, ba- fallen out of the majors, was, was, was relegated to the Mexican League uh, because of his bad knees. We have Willie Mays Hayes, who... No one seems to know where he came from, but he's a speedy guy that just kind of shows up to camp. I guess he'd be one of the ones that wasn't on the list. Uh, yeah. We have Ricky Vaughn, who is incarcerated uh, <laughs> before spring training, but he's Pitching a hard for the thrower. California Penal League. Yeah. <laughs> and we have uh, Pedro Serrano, the big slugger who is defected from Cuba uh, and is looking for religious asylum because he practices voodoo. So we we have spring training. Uh, we see the players. Uh, oh, and I should mention that he also hires Lou Brown, who is managing in Toledo, and of course Lou Brown has to think about it because he's got a guy on the other line uh, asking about some white walls. So he'll he'll, he'll get back to Charlie about the manager's <laughs> job. Uh, so we, we get to spring training and the players all assemble, and we we kind of this is our first chance to kind of meet them, and uh, I think we immediately get kind of the conflicts that will kind of run through this movie a little bit. First, the first one being. Uh, and they probably the primary one is Roger Dorn versus Rick Vaughn. Mm-hmm. Uh, they immediately clash. Dorn is kind of the high price free agent that's been been in Cleveland for a while, but is not what he once was. Money has kind of gotten to him. Uh, he doesn't really die for balls the way he used to. And of course, he kind of picks on Ricky Vaughn, the the rookie who looks a little bit different. Uh, and uh, you can tell that they're gonna they're gonna be they're gonna be at each other's throat the entire movie. And the other conflict is is kind of uh, Harris versus Serrano. Harris being the, the I guess, Christian, uh, very religious Christian, while Pedro mm-hmm. Serrano is the practicing voodoo. And, of course, you're going to have uh, some conflicts there as well. Uh, the spring training montage uh, is, well, first of all, <laughs> there's spring training living quarters. I don't know if that's actually how it was in the 80s. I can't imagine... No. They bunk them. They have bunk beds, thirty to a room, like basic training in the army or something, or like summer camp. Uh, maybe that's the way it was in the eighties. I just, I don't know. I just thought that really funny because, and it does provide the comedic opportunity for the security team to to get Willie Mays Hayes in the middle of the night and and carry him outside while he's sleeping. But I can't imagine that's the way it really was at spring training. Yeah, I don't know. I, I also, we, you bring that up, I can't imagine that somebody shows up to spring training and acts like they belong there and doesn't get removed, <laughs> uh, like, until later that night. Like, <laughs> I can't imagine that being how that goes now. Well, I, don't, I guess they didn't have the internet to check up on people, so, you know, you could just show up and say, <laughs> hey, I belong, and, like, they let it fly for a couple hours, you know, even yeah, if you weren't gotta, on the You gotta call everybody and be like, did you sign this guy? Did you <laughs> sign this guy? So, uh, you know, so we, we see this players obviously struggle in spring training. Uh, all of them have kind of obvious flaws. And they all kind of s- seem to fit like baseball archetypes. We have the, the speedy center fielder who can't really hit. We have the hard-throwing pitcher who can't throw – doesn't have any command. We have the, the veteran catcher whose knees have kind of let him down. We have the, the big slugger who can hit the fastball a country mile but can't hit the curveball at all. Bats are afraid. Um <laughs> But I think that's part of why, like you said, the realism, but also these these archetypes, we've seen them throughout baseball, and I think mm-hmm. that's kind of why they resonate with us so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he, I know Ward said that, like, he based some of these characters on real real players, like Dorn, or no, excuse me, uh, Ricky Vaughn is kind of loosely based on Ryan Dern, who was a 60s-era pitcher who kind of lived a hard lifestyle off, off the field, you know, kind of dating models and actresses mm-hmm. and 
Uh, he liked his alcohol, and, and, and on the field he threw high 90s, but uh, I think led the league in, like, wild pitches, couldn't, couldn't throw strikes at all. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, I think Jake Taylor was a little bit based on Carlton Fisk. Uh, I right. think a lot of people made a connection with um, uh, uh, Willie Mays Hayes and Alex Cole, who was a center fielder for the Indians at the time, although, I th- you know, I think when Ward was writing that, um, Cole wasn't quite up at the big leagues yet, so it's probably yeah. based on a number of speedy center fielders we've seen throughout baseball, but but definitely, you know, you see a lot of these common archetypes throughout uh, throughout the game. Um, Absolutely. So we see them struggle in spring training. I think that provides some of the funnier moments, too, and you see William Hayes Hayes sliding and coming up 10 feet <laughs> short of the base. Um, and then there's a little bit of an obstacle there, like, will they make the team? And of course, we know they will because that's why we're following these guys. But there's a little bit right. of drama with the red tagging. Uh, Ricky Vaughn thinks he doesn't make the team, but uh, he finds out it's just a big prank by Dorn. And, of course, that ends up leading to fisticuffs. Um, and that's that's just one of a number of obst- uh, n- number of conflicts they'll have. Uh, but they do. They, all these guys do end up making the team, and that brings us to Cleveland. They all go north to Cleveland, and that's where we meet Lynn. Uh, they're kind of celebrating out at the restaurant. Uh, Jake Taylor looks over and sees <laughs> Lynn, who he says is his wife, and they say, "Hey, right. Blaine Mays Hayes." Like, "Hey, does she know that?" Uh, and it's <laughs> which is another great line. Yeah, and <laughs> and, uh, and it's, of course it's an old flame of his that didn't work out. And I guess so. I was trying to piece together his career. I guess he had been an All Star in Boston. She she had been obviously with him for many many years, and maybe had followed him from like Boston to Cleveland, and then. Mm-hmm. At some point, and obviously, he didn't didn't sound like he was the best partner in the world. New, she did hunt quite a bit, uh, and you know, he obviously the bread they broke it off, and I guess she must have stayed in Cleveland at that point, and he kind of w- went wherever he went out of the major leagues on to Mexico, but he does see her again. Now, I guess do you want to talk about the love story a little bit uh, because it's not great. <laughs> it's not a great <laughs> love story. <laughs> Well, uh, and and we we're gonna we find out like immediately that it's not gonna be great because I mean like you said Jake's first line about her is oh that's my wife well no she's not dude she 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 as uh, as um, Willie Mays Hayes points out does she know that because because she's not and and that's the kind of attitude that um, kind of sets off the the stalker alarm bells <laughs> and then and then of course he goes down there and he calls her on the phone and, and tricks her into coming over to talk to him and then won't let her leave until she gives him a phone number and she gives him a fake phone number and he still he still tracks her down at her job won't leave her alone there then he follows her when she leaves her job one day and and arrives at her boyfriend's apartment well follows this kind he stalked her <laughs> right he he, he really just kind of literally stalks her all throughout the movie and then at the end she's like well you read moby dick and of course he didn't really read moby dick <laughs> he read a comic book version of moby dick so and it's like, is that really all he needed to do to win you, especially with all the stalking stuff? Of course, I'm also kind of still stuck on why does the elevator, like, just open <laughs> directly into someone's apartment? Yes, I, that, that bugged me so much. So, like, he follows her to what we think is her place, but it's actually her fiancé's place. And I feel like this happened in a lot of 80s movies and TV shows where you'd, like, take an elevator and you just would be in someone's living room. Like, how does that happen? Like... I don't understand that. It's bad. Like it's there's, bad there's, security. And then he he also gets into her her house. Yeah. Um I'm like does anyone lock their doors anywhere in Cleveland? <laughs> it's Cleveland. Everyone's too trusting. 
<laughs> yeah, but it's it's sure. Yeah, it's, okay. It's very problematic. It's I mean, like it's the when he's being so persistent about getting your phone number, I was just like, you know, like. Uh, yeah, don't. maybe, I, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll try and give the movie the benefit of the doubt that maybe in the '80s that seemed kind of char- like, oh, you know, persistent. You got to yeah. be persistent. But, but uh, by 2020, that that really reads pretty problematic. And especially when she gives him like the wrong number, and he still continues. Like that's a pretty clear signal that she doesn't want to talk to you. Yeah, and he. <laughs> He consider he continues to to just kind of follow her around and 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 basically stalk her. Yeah. Like there's not really a better way to describe what he does than stalking her. Yeah. Take a hint, Jake. Uh, <laughs> no, but I think you're right. I think there is like this common trope, like in the '80s, that like, oh, you can win her over if you're just persistent. And just don't don't stop stalking her. Like, and she'll eventually wear down and say, but like, we don't see him really grow. As a, I mean, I guess he steps yeah, into a leadership role on the team. And he doesn't, but he doesn't like, like you said, he kind of just half acidly that, reads Moby Dick. Right. And that's, that's kind of an issue with their, with their romance. Even if you take away the stalking, like what does Jake do that, that makes anyone, Lynn, the audience, anybody think that he is now worthy of her? Um, nothing. He, he plays he plays baseball. He becomes, and he's, he doesn't even really grow as a baseball player. Like he does. I don't, I don't really recall a moment where he's like, Oh, you know, I, I really got to change my perspective in this way. Um, to, to be, to help the team more and focus on myself less or something like that, which is usually what you'd see from the, the, the aged veteran stereotype baseball player. Um, so he's just kind of there. And, and, and that's he's just pretty he's just filling he's filling his role in the movie as the romantic male lead and the aged veteran baseball player and he just doesn't do anything with it it's the in a very good movie and in a very fun movie jake is is kind of a weak point as far as the writing goes do you think this i mean i know they obviously they felt like they had attack in a love story to i guess because every movie needs a love story, I guess. But sure, could this movie have been made without a love story? Is there a way to make a love story work in this in this film? I I um I really think that if you cut the love story out of the movie, it loses nothing but runtime. <laughs> yeah. There was a version of the movie that they were working on, um, where the movie was actually going to end on a marriage ceremony between Jake and Lynn, and they cut that out because it was taking away from the baseball <laughs> the the winning of the division yeah so um in, in that sense it, it's like you're all, you're on to something there with jake <laughs> and lynn stuff is taken away from your baseball yeah just go a little bit further maybe um but i there i feel like there could be a way to do it if it was um if you if you spent some more time on it and you had less stalking and you had more Jake realizing like what a jerk he'd been and right, like, right. and kind of just being um, more generous and less selfish and not to Lynn, but to the team and to maybe the community where she can see him and then kind of fall back in love with him that way. 
I think that kind of love story could work uh, if you were like going to remake Major League for 2020 for whatever reason. Uh, not that I'm suggesting that that's a good idea. They have suggested um, that. I mean, and they've and Ward said he's up for it, and some of the actors have said they're up for it. I mean, it. it's it's not it's not the worst idea I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. But um, to to just as a spoiler spoiler, I guess does this movie hold up outside of the Jake and Lynn romance? Yeah, it it really kind of does. Um, but the Jake and Lynn romance is very problematic. And so, like I said, if you were going to remake it, I would probably try to make it so that it's less about Jake just going straight at Lynn all the time and more about like Jake, um, Jake becoming a better person and Lynn falling back in love with him. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll uh, talk about the beginning of the regular season in Major League. So we get to opening day, and uh, one of my favorite scenes is when the players take the field, and Harry Doyle, of course, is hyping up the team. And it reminds me of so many Royals seasons where, uh-huh. you know, you have Steve Fiziak or whoever was a broadcaster at the time saying, you know, how, how into the team the fans were. <laughs> and, of course, Cleveland loves their Indians, and he puts the microphone out as the team takes the field, and you hear just a smattering of applause, and there's like a few dozen people in the seats. <laughs> That's a great scene. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, obviously the Indians are bad. Uh, they're really bad. No one comes out to see them. They play the Yankees, who are kind of the the, the villain in this movie, for good reason. And um, they hold their own for the first couple innings, but, um, but eventually Ricky Vaughn comes into a bases-loaded situation. Uh, probably not the best way to handle your rookie pitcher, to be honest, Lou Brown. But uh, he comes in to face the reigning MVP, uh, Hayward, who's actually played by former Major League pitcher uh, John Vukovic, uh, who wasn't a hitter, but he, he looked like one. He, he played the part really well, yeah. uh, but he was actually a really good pitcher back in the day. Uh, and, of course, gives up a grand slam to Vukovic, and, and, the, and the, uh, <laughs> the following batter he hits, uh, which causes him to be tossed out of his very first big league game. And it, it's kind of setting up the, the obstacles the Indians are going to have early on. Mm-hmm. And we see them struggle early on. They're, they're, you know, they're dropping fly balls or making errors. Dorn can't get go, go to balls to his left. Taylor's still, you know, struggling with his knees. Uh, but they kind of turn things around a little bit. Um, the players start to improve, uh, which only. Oh, and I guess we should have mentioned the whole plot, which I skipped over. That is, uh, you know, Rachel Phelps has assembled this team, not to be good, but she has assembled this team to be so bad that she can lower attendance to the point where she can move the team to Miami, uh, which actually is a very plausible premise. I think, um, mm-hmm. yep. uh, you know, we've seen a lot of owners, I think, try to, try to do that's, something like that. It's like Charlie. That's where that Minnesota see. earlier, Minnesota owner you were talking about earlier, threatened to move the team. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's, it was, it was long a popular uh, destination until they actually, you know, got an expansion team there. <laughs> And we saw that fans won't come out to Miami as well. So. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting. Uh, I guess I didn't. I never knew this, but they actually filmed a scene at the end where Rachel Phelps does a plot twist, and then mm-hmm. you know she she talks to Lou Brown and says, "I didn't really want to move the team to Miami. I was just that was all a ruse. I was just trying to motivate you, and I was actually rooting for you the whole guys the whole time." Yeah, which I, in the not original, very believable. <laughs> well. That's true. Um, and, and I guess uh, this is what I read was in the original version of the movie that she does all that. And the reason that the team is crap isn't because she's intentionally trying to lose. It's because she, she just doesn't have any money because mm-hmm. the team is, is on the verge of bankruptcy after her husband dies. Um, and I, I suspect there were some other writing changes that were made 
um, when they when they cut that part out because it apparently did very poorly with um, test audiences. So that's that's that part did. So they, the the test audiences liked her being a villain, so they just kept her as a villain. And, and I suspect they rewrote some other things to just make her more villainous to play into more of uh, what the test audiences were telling them anyway. Yeah, that's true because some of the other scenes don't make sense at all with that plot right. twist, like when she throws more obstacles at them, like making them you know ride that really crappy plane, right? Or uh, when she kind of goes in the clubhouse and you know kind of confronts them about the broken right. uh, whirlpools and but if if instead it was oh i don't have money so you have to take this crappy plane oh i don't have money so you have to take i can't fix your your whirlpool but i'm telling and then she tells like if we see a scene where she she realizes she doesn't have the money for these things instead of the scene where she says i know what i'll do you know you just flip those two scenes around and it completely changes everything right and, and so i suspect that's what happened so the team does start to play a little bit better. Uh, we see Vaughn kind of working on a complete game. Uh, a ground ball that would have ended the game gets by Roger Dorn a little bit beyond his. doesn't have much range to his left. Uh, <laughs> kind of like an old, a late career Derek Jeter. Uh, Vaughn, though, thinks that Dorn was kind of tanking it, either because of animus, probably because of animus towards him. Um, Jake says, no, you know, don't worry about it, but it does go to Dorn's house later that day and uh, confronts him about it. Dorn says, you know, I'm not going to take a, a ball off the, the face. I've got plans. You know, I'm, I'm going to test free agency and I've got plans after my career. Uh, so that kind of sets up a little bit of a confrontation as well. The team does, so they start to play a little better. Uh, I guess they pulled a 500 or 1661, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when general manager Charlie Donovan reveals to Lou Brown that uh, the, the whole premise behind the movie that, it, that Rachel Phelps actually wants them to lose so she can move the team to Miami. And that's when they set up the cardboard cutout of her with 30 pieces of uh, 30 pieces to rip off representing each win. I think it's 32 pieces because I think they need 92 wins, they say. Uh, mm-hmm. Which, by the way, that will require them to win uh, three out of every four games the rest of the year. So the, yeah. last, the last 40 <laughs> games, they really go on a tear. <laughs> you talk about the Royals back half of 2014 and 2015. Boy, the, yeah. the, the Indians in 89 in this movie were something else. Yeah. Uh, but they do. It, hey, it motivated them, um, yep. and they ended up they end up pulling even with the Yankees, forcing which, which one is my favorite uh, situations of baseball: the one game playoff, like the wild card in two thousand fourteen. Before the wild, the one game wild card, the, the only way you could have that was when two teams tied for first place, which is what we get in this. Which I don't know if that was all that clear to a lot of non baseball fans. Like my my son had to ask. He's like, "Wait a minute, is this the World Series?" I'm like, "No, no, no. When two teams tie, you have a one game playoff." Uh, so I don't know if anyone was a little confused by that because they don't actually. I actually thought it was just the last last game of the season, so you no, clarified it, that even it, for me. Right, right. So <laughs> it's a little. I guess maybe that part's a little confusing. But there's one game, a one game playoff: Yankees versus Indians for the whole thing or for the division, I guess. And uh, one interesting uh, B plot, I guess, that's going on is that during the celebration, Roger Dorn's wife notices that he is cavorting with another woman. And so she sets out to get her revenge by sleeping with an unwitting accomplice named Ricky Vaughn, which uh, Vaughn, I guess, immediately after the deed is done, realizes who she is and immediately regrets it. Uh, And of course, she tells Dorn what she does before right before the big game, which not not a cool move, Suzanne, not a cool move to tell him right before the big game uh, that his his marriage has been wrecked. Uh, And that kind of sets up the confrontation throughout the game that. Roger Dorn wants to kick the crap out of Rick Vaughn for sleeping with his wife. Uh, I don't know if they needed that 
subplot. And I always yeah, I was I was uh, when that. I was watching it, I was wondering that. I was like, you know, there's there's a lot of tension here. Didn't we really need to add just that teeny bit more? Did that did that really help? It doesn't hurt it. Yeah. They don't play on it so hard that it hurts it, so it's fine. But um, I did wonder like. I think we're good. I don't think we need to add anything, but okay. Did did Lou Brown make the right right call in starting Harris over Vaughn? Because I know Harris was supposed. To, I think they said he was a seventeen game winner, so he, mm-hmm. he's obviously good. He he uh you know he's an old veteran pitcher. Vaughn, I guess he struggled against the Yankees, but you know small sample size maybe. I don't know. Uh, he he hadn't just struggled against the Yankees. He's also struggled against um their biggest hitter, yeah. uh, the guy Vukovic plays, who's character i can't remember hayward. now hayward um so he he just struggled against that those guys and he's a rookie pitcher um so i i understand why you make the call to go with your your crafty veteran um late in the year because you know uh we've, we've seen it time and time again where the younger pitchers they're not used to throwing all those innings um so that can that can catch up with them so i i i think that was probably a good call yeah, and Harris, I guess, does go out. It's and toss. at least defensible. Yeah, well, he, he tosses a pretty good game. He gives up yeah. two runs uh, in the seventh, which at that point you probably should start warming up your bullpen. But but he leaves mm-hmm. Harris in, so the, the the Indians are facing a two zero deficit in the bottom of the seventh, um, and that's when uh, I think two outs, Dorn gets something going in the seventh with a with a, uh, uh, I think a single, and I believe uh, uh, Corbin Bernstein, I guess, wasn't a very accomplished baseball player. And they, they really needed him to make, you know, come up with a big hit. And I guess he said he nailed it on the first try, like got one in the gap. And he was just like, uh, and then I think it went all the way to the wall. And he was just so, so surprised by himself that he was, uh, uh, he was really taken aback. Uh, we should point out that the big game is played in Cleveland, but the game is actually played in Milwaukee uh, because, and if, you, if, you're, if you're a baseball fan, you'll notice, first of all, for every baseball scene in Cleveland, you'll say, that's not Cleveland Municipal Stadium. And you're right. It's actually Milwaukee's County Stadium, home of the Brewers at the time. Uh, I guess Cleveland is a big union town, and they wanted to they wanted to keep that uh, budget to eleven million dollars or whatever it was. So they filmed it in Milwaukee, uh, and they they I guess they asked um, anyone in Milwaukee that wanted to come out and watch a movie being made to come out, and twenty seven thousand people showed up, which is pretty cool. I actually had a a friend who lived in Milwaukee at the time. He said he went to a, one of those because uh, they filmed it for a couple nights. He said he went to one of the nights and they filmed, I think they filmed like two or three in the morning. Um, so, you know, they're out there quite a while, but it's pretty cool that they got an actual crowd. I mean, this is before CGI. Yeah. Um, and so when, when the players run on the field, um, you know, that's, that's a real crowd cheering them on. And uh, you know, some of the actors said they got goosebumps just doing mm-hmm. that, which, which had been a really cool treat. And I think that just yeah, there, adds to the realism. There was, there was a, a Dennis Haysbert, um, supposedly, um, at the end of the game, when when they charged the field and all the fans were cheering, he was actually emotionally overwhelmed, like for real. <laughs> and um, Vukovic told him, or no, not Vukovic, um, Steve Yeager, who uh, was a, a, a former MLB catcher and did some, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? His advisor to the movie. Yeah, he was a he was a technical advisor for the movie. He he was like, yeah, it's like that 162 games a year. <laughs> Maybe perhaps not as dramatic. I mean, some, yeah. some of those Royals ones are just kind of, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, but yeah, so it, I think that, that that's a small little detail that does take away from the realism just because you're like, that's not Cleveland Stadium. But we can we can deal with that. They did cover at least cover up some of the Brewer signs. 
but you can tell you can tell the difference. Anyone that's I think that's seen the American. And I think game. there's one shot where you can see the it's the Billy the Brewer mascot or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if you're looking for it, so uh, so Dorn gets the the lead, the two out single, which sets up Serrano and Serrano, who's been bat, you know kind of using this voodoo to kind of you know his his, his Jobu his spirit who mm-hmm. uh, Harris has mocked throughout the, the movie. Well, you know, Jobu has has helped him, but not with the curveball so much. And so that's when Serrano says, you know, F you, Jobu, I'll do it myself. And he ends up, I'm not clear it's a curveball. It looks kind of like a curveball, but he ends up shooting it over the left field fence. And like I said, Haysbert actually did did hit a, hit a jack there uh, to, to tie the game at 2-2. Um, game goes to the ninth inning. Uh I think you know maybe Brown made the right call to leave Harris in, to start Harris, but leaves him in a little too long. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Yankees load the bases against Harris, which like you know, come on, man, you got to take him out the first sign of trouble, right? Mm-hmm. And then brings in Rick Vaughn, which to me that's one of the cooler scenes of the whole movie mm-hmm. when Rick Vaughn, who's wearing this trademark sun, uh, trademark eyeglasses because he, his vision's a problem, mm-hmm. uh, enters the game to his iconic song "Wild Thing." Um, which I who sings that song? Who I, I forget. X is it X? I want to say it's yeah, X. it's like one that's some. I don't think they that was like the, their one hit. Um, yeah, you're the right. Trogs. X, good call. Or, uh, is I, it the, or it's a remake of the Trogs, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so comes out to the to the wild and thing, it, and the crowd goes it, nuts. Yeah, and it apparently inspired like the the real life phenomenon of catcher or not excuse me not catchers closers walking out with walk up music like that like wild thing or trevor hoffman with San, enter the sandman um or or you hell's, know whoever he hell's bells hell's enter bells. sandman was uh, mo rivera i believe uh, is that right all these closers they, they roll together in my head yeah. but yeah <laughs> and mike mcdougal was do you remember his oh gosh <laughs> Nope. I'll give you a sure he, was the, he was the hurricane or something like that. He he was, but he came out to rock me like a hurricane by the score. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that's the thing. Doesn't like the best message to send as a pitcher? Like, because <laughs> rock me usually means like you just hit a home run off of me. But sure, we'll go with that. He that's lived fine. up to that sometimes. So. <laughs> whatever you knew, uh, the greatest thing about McDougal was whatever was going to happen, it was going to be something else. Yeah. So Vaughn comes in. Of course, he has to face Hayward too, which like that's not playing the matchups very well there, Lou Brown. But he faces uh he faces Hayward, and you know Taylor's playing mind games, telling him, "Hey, what are we gonna throw here?" And of course, it's just three straight heaters, each mm-hmm. progressing in, in their velocity. Which, by the way, in spring training, he comes in and he and he throws his first pitch, and he and I and I was you know I hadn't seen this in a while, and I'm like, okay, well, how hard how does he throw? It's 96, which that's good, but it's like, and I think baseball is just a lot different now. Like back in the day, yeah. it probably was a, a really impressive thing, but now it's like, man, every, everyone yeah. throws 96. Yeah, if you don't throw 96, you better have something. Right. Um, and, and 96 is definitely not enough to get you on even even that Indians team. I don't think throwing 96 in 2020 would get you onto that team. Um, with the the control problems he was having. Well, he does amp up the velocity for this, and he uh, gets it up to 101 for his last pitch. And, and like you said, you know, Vaughn, or Ricky, Charlie Sheen, I guess, could legit throw in the 80s. I guess he said he took steroids, too, uh, for this. <laughs> yeah. To amp it like, up I gotta, a little bit I gotta more. throw harder. Yeah. 
but but he was also throwing like he was throwing like a whole game out there because you know with how many takes they had to do he said he had to throw right. like 100 120 pitches out there and then go back and do it the next night again uh without any days off so he probably needed those steroids uh another yeah. trick i know they did is they they moved up the plate so it's not 60 feet six inches it's actually like 50 feet to make it yeah. seem like he's throwing even harder so a couple of tricks there to make it but he legit looks good he looks like a real pitcher out there i think um, yeah well i mean he was a real pitcher so yeah. and that's that's what you get when you can find someone uh dual talented like that yeah so he finishes off the yankees we go to the bottom of the ninth and i did want to point something out that was pointed out at the ringer yeah. is that the indians cheated they actually <laughs> batted out of order uh and i'll walk you through this this is actually written by ben lindberg at the ringer so in the seventh inning, Dorn hits that two-out single, right? And let's say for the sake of argument that Dorn is hitting third. So Serrano follows it up with a two-run home run. He's hitting fourth. The number five hitter presumably makes the last out. In the eighth inning, I, I'm guessing they went one, two, three. So that's the sixth, seventh, and eighth hitters. In the ninth inning, we get a one out. They say there's one out. And then Tomlinson, who we know is not really a character in the movie, but we just kind of see this play they say Tomlinson hits one to the warning track and you see the Yankee player catching at the wall so Tomlinson in this arrangement it's leadoff Willie Mays Hayes then would be hitting second um, and he gets he gets a one, uh, one out single or two out single at that point he's followed by Jake Taylor who would be hitting third but we already said Dorn is hitting third so somewhere you know I'm nitpicking here but they did they, they sent 10 men to the plate that's what I'm saying they cheated Let's, uh, you know, uh, I think we got to go back and replay this game. <laughs> we got to play the one. The division is tainted now. Uh, <laughs> so, so Willie Mays does uh, does get that single in the ninth with two outs. Uh, he steals second, and then uh, I think this is a pretty cool like a plot twist, I guess, because you think, okay, well, they're going to win it, right? But how are they mm-hmm. going to win it? It's going to be mm-hmm. a dramatic home run. Mm-hmm. And Jake Taylor kind of sets up that drama by calling a shot like Babe Ruth mm-hmm. did in the World Series way back in the day. At least uh, uh, the, the apocryphal story is that Babe Ruth called a shot. Right. Uh, but instead, and of course, the first pitch, I love the, the, the realism is that the first mm-hmm. pitch is right at his head, which yep. is exactly what a pitcher would do in real life. If you go back to that authenticity we were talking about with, with all the baseball knowledge between the cast and the, the writer. Yeah, and and so once the uh, the the, uh, the Yankee pitcher who's uh, the the Duke who they their closer, um, he uh, he said he the next offering Taylor lays down a beautiful bunt, much to the surprise of the Yankees infielders, uh, and you know this is the last out, so you know he's got to beat it out, and he's got those bad knees, but he hustles down the line, he beats it out, and Willie Mays Hayes is circling third. And with Eric Hosmer like abandoned, <laughs> makes a break for home. And you know, if Hayward makes a good throw, he maybe gets him. But he's he's kind of the the progenitor to Luke, Lucas Duda, and uh, doesn't make a great throw. And Willie Mays Hayes is safe, and the Indians win the division. And uh, that's they all celebrate in the field. Everyone runs in the field. Everyone celebrates. And of course, Jake spots Lynn, and I guess they she doesn't have a ring now, and she's not engaged. Yeah. And that's kind of how the movie ends. We never see them in the playoffs. Uh, we don't know how it ends. Uh, but well, I think we at this point, all we want to see, too. yeah, I think at this point we just want to see them win. You know, end of first place for a change. Yeah. So that's how the movie ends. Uh, but just kind of, what, what what are your big thoughts about the big game? Um, it's just it's a lot of fun. The the atmosphere does end up feeling very playoff like. Um, and, and 
and I, I again I guess that goes back to that authenticity. Like um, one of the running gags with Harry Doyle throughout the entire movie is is that he's drinking he's drinking whiskey. He loves his <laughs> his whiskey or whatever it is he's drinking up there. Um, and he's doing that all throughout the season. And at first it's because the team is so bad and he can't stand being there. But then it's like, well, he still just loves his whiskey so much he'll still dab it behind his ears and stuff. Um, and he's he's stone cold sober for this, and he he announces this game like he is a, he is announcing the real playoffs with with just all that vigor and excitement. And um, I I can't help but go back to to Angels of the Outfield, which I just watched and wrote about a couple weeks ago, and how um, the announcer in that game is rooting against the Angels for silly reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he's not calling the game. Like it's an important playoff game. He's calling it like, I hate this team. I want them to lose. <laughs> so then you, you contrast that with, with Bob Euchre's call. And it's like, man, that's what it sounds like when a real announcer announces a real playoff game. And so it really helps set that tone. Um, and, and the, the players sell it really well with the tension and the, the score sets it up pretty well. It's just, it all combines to, to give a really good finale and a good finish to the movie. Um, it's, I, I don't, it's hard to, to just point to any one single thing, but all the pieces just really kind of come together to make it feel like just a lot of fun and like a real playoff game and like a real nail biter. Yeah. One of my favorite things when a when there is a dramatic exciting moment in baseball is when the announcer just shuts up and lets us kind of mm-hmm. soak in the the crowd mm-hmm. and they actually do that in this movie like uh harry doyle does kind of celebrate and say the indians have done it but then there is a couple moments where it's just like you hear the crowd and the players are just mm-hmm. celebrating and i think if there was a non-baseball director or writer they would you would have had the the uh, announcer going nuts and you would have heard some more jokes yeah. in there and it would Absolutely. just kind of ruin the scene a little bit Absolutely. but they let it they, they let it kind of marinate and say this is what an actual baseball celebration is like this yep. is fans going nuts and this is you know and that that like you said the, the, it really brings home kind of the realism of this movie mm-hmm. um and i think i i really appreciate that part of it as well so uh, you know, there was i did want to bring up this quote just um another from the ringer danny kelly the ringer wrote about this once and he, he writes he kind of compares uh major league to to veep which i think is actually a really good analogy uh he, he writes quote the examples are often over the top but still feels strangely authentic much how like much like how veep portrays a more realistic version of washington dc than house of cards does major league reminds us that baseball is a game that many people care about but most of those people are huge goofballs and i think that is actually true because mm-hmm. uh, you know some of the I know, I know a little bit about politics work a little bit in politics and it, it, it is it is a lot more like veep than like the <laughs> super serious house of cards and i think baseball is probably a little like that too it's more like major league than the natural or than or than like field than field of dreams which you know obviously is more mysticism but um it 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 is it's fairly realistic but still goofy which if you follow baseball for a long time you know that baseball players are just immature silly you know adults going through a rest rest of development that don't want to grow up like jake taylor they just Mm -hmm. want to have fun and they're just big goofballs and i think they Mm -hmm. that comes through really clear in that movie this movie Danny Kelly also wrote, but Major League celebrates baseball from all perspectives. It examines the relationship between ownership of the front office, the front office and the coaching staff, and the coaching staff and the players. And so it, you were talking about the the iconic song at the beginning of the movie and the, the, the newspapers and everything, but we also get like some quick snaps from different groups of fans and, um, and the grounds crew, and we just kind of get a perspective 
of this team. And, and as the as the, the movie goes on and, and the team gets better and gets worse, gets better and gets worse, we see those quick snaps more and more from just all the perspectives of a baseball team. And I think that helps add to the to the feeling of not just authenticity, but um, involvement. Because like we're all familiar with one of those groups, right? So, uh, so we can kind of see ourselves in it. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, one of those fans, uh, Neil Flynn, that was his first, uh, who you may know from Scrubs and The Middle, uh, but he, that was his first uh, acting role. Uh, he's one of the fans. Um, I guess we should only talk about, did it, does it hold up, uh, since you've kind of been judging a lot of these movies by kind of the, the standards of today. And of course, you know, this came out 30 years ago, and I think a lot of comedies from that era, I, th- I think if you hold them under a real strict microscope from today's lens... There are a lot of jokes that aren't going to hold up as well, just as the more we know and the more we're kind of sensitive to uh, different groups and and, uh, and just being, you know, common sense now. But you you, you say for the most part, other than maybe the love story, this holds up pretty well. You know, go into that a little bit more. Like, does the, I mean, the baseball stuff seems to hold up pretty well. Like, baseball hasn't changed, I think, too much. Uh, But what about some of the other stuff uh, that that the movie touches upon? Um, so the one other kind of problematic aspect is um, Bob Euchre, uh really kind of leans into um, some of the Native American stereotypes as he's talking about the team. Um, and I don't know how much of that was written and how much of that was improvised. Uh, so I don't I don't know who to blame, quote unquote. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Um, and to be clear, he, though, but they're not necessarily like the, the super negative like. Right. You know, Native, Native American story. It's more like right. just like new references to wigwams and tribe and teepees and stuff like that. Right. Um, so it's not like he's he's going out of his way to bash them, but it is uh, it is a lot of references that we probably wouldn't feel comfortable making in 2020. Um, it's it either is not as bad as I remembered it being because I again I watched this yesterday uh, when I was getting ready to do this podcast. Um, it's either not as bad as I remember it, or they cut a whole bunch of those for the TV version. Because I did end up watching the TV version, uh, where a lot of the cursing was cut out of the movie. Um, <laughs> no, I don't. You know, I, I watched the unedited version. It wasn't. It, it's just. It's mostly just references to wigwams and teepees. Yeah. I think probably m- more of an issue is the the fans dressed up in, in right. headdresses. <laughs> right. Uh, which, but that actually, I think, it still happens now. So. Yep. Um, it does. Yeah, it's probably more to do with the the Cleveland Indians having a big cartoonish mascot that's problem problematic yeah. than anything. But uh, um, it it certainly could have been a lot worse. Um, and and uh, there was no, you know, uh, they they bring in Serrano, who's a Cuban, and he's this big black dude. Um, and they they could have made a lot of jokes at his expense that could have been really racist. Um, and they didn't like, I would have expected them to in the eighties and they really didn't. Um, as far as voodoo goes, it's actually kind of treated a little bit respectfully. I mean, there's a couple jokes like when he wants to sacrifice a chicken. So they get him a bucket of KFC. Um, like Joe, Joe gets his revenge on Harris. (laughs) Right. And then, and then Harris drinks his, his, um, his, his rum and he gets his revenge. So it's like they, there's, there's not, uh, there's not really a racism bent to this movie at all, which is kind of refreshing for an eighties movie to be completely honest. Um, and, and everybody respects Serrano. Nobody except, I mean, Eddie Harris and him conflict a little bit, but not like 
at a racist angle. No. It's just like uh, I'm I'm a Christian, you're voodoo, and they don't go too deep with it where it would be offensive or irritating. It's just really light, um, shallow stuff where where it can still be funny. Um, Which, and, by the way, it, there's one thing one thing I'd never noticed in the movie until I watched it last week is. Uh, <laughs> When they're on the airplane and they're all kind of trading the the really bad Hiawatha, you know, songs of Hiawatha, uh-huh. all the terrible reading material, uh, they cut to Harris. I never noticed before. Harris is reading a Hustler magazine. Oh, I which, didn't notice that. Which for the like the super Christian guy, I was just I thought that was really funny. Right. <laughs> but yeah, that, I, I agree. I, I was expecting it to be. A, I was expecting like because I went back and watched a lot mm-hmm. of '80s movies with my my son uh, the last couple of weeks, and and some of them age, have not aged very well at all. And I was expecting like, okay, there's going to be like one or two really bad thing there wasn't really anything that bad like you know yeah. they could have someone could have really mishandled like willie mays hayes like there could have been some really racist stuff in there there's mm-hmm. no mention at all of his race like there's no reference yeah to it at all. and and there's there's all kinds of stuff because he's a base stealer that's his skill right yeah. so the it would have been really easy to just kind of lean into oh black people steal things jokes right uh, and they didn't or or, just, just, or still silly jive talking like that's how we see right. black people you know yeah uh, so yeah so, so that was nice, and they they were just like, yeah, we we love him because he steals bases, and that that's as far as they went, and that's it was it really, and the 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 jokes are just kind of um, they're just kind I I don't want to say that they're safe, but they're I want to I want to call them kind of um intelligent jokes is what I I kind of like to refer to them as they're jokes that don't rely on lazy stereotypes, they're jokes that don't rely necessarily on ridiculous physical humor though there is some of that as in when jobu gets his revenge on harris uh with the bat flying and hit him in the head um but a little bit of that's good but it's it's just jokes where it's like the situation sets it up and they call it out um for uh one of one of the jokes i actually really liked was um again on the airplane when everything's going crazy and Serrano crosses himself. Cause he's like, just whatever it takes to survive this plane ride. And Harris is like, Oh, now you're a believer. huh?" Um, so that, that's, that's funny. Yeah. Um, and, and this, like the chicken thing, like we got, we, he wants to sacrifice a chicken. We got to get him a chicken. We can't let him sacrifice a live chicken. What are we going to get him some KFC? Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's just, it, I won't call it good, clean fun because there's there's plenty of cursing and there there's plenty of innuendos and hustler and whatnot. But it's it's good fun. It's it's not uh, it's not it's not hurtful fun at all. And it's it's still a really enjoyable movie because and and the baseball still feels like baseball and that that's why I say it holds up is just because you you can watch this movie and you just cut out just a little small part of it, not that much of it. Um, and, and it's still just perfectly good. You don't have to feel bad about enjoying it. Let's, uh, I did want to touch on uh, the baseball scenes uh, because I think some movies, like Bull Durham is an excellent movie, mm-hmm. but the baseball scenes, some of the baseball scenes really take me <laughs> out of it. Yeah. Uh, how would you, I, mean, this, uh, I think this would be up there among some of the better baseball scenes. How, where do you kind of put it and where do you, how would you rank the actors themselves in baseball ability? Um, so obviously Sheen was a pitcher. He looks pretty good pitching out there. He's kind of like um, a, he's kind of like a hall of fame baseball actor. Like, yeah. And perhaps the best ever him or Cosner. I think you'd have yeah. to make a case for, um, he's pretty good. I, I like the way, uh, uh, oh gosh, the Serrano, um, Hayes, Hayes, 
Haysbert. Yep. Haysbert. I wait. I like the way he swings the bat. He looks pretty good with it. Um, none of them look good running. None of them <laughs> look look great throwing. Um, the, obviously they all look better than Wesley Snipes because they were willing to show them throwing. Um, it's interesting. One of the things that I found interesting was watching Dorn at third base because he's supposed to be bad at it, and it's it's hard to intentionally be bad at something. Right. Um, so he, he really gives a pretty solid effort of being bad at third base, but like he's supposed to be right. Not in a sense of like, oh, well that looks really bad, even though they're, they're trying to tell me it's good. Which by the way, did they never think to move him over to the diamond to first base? You know, move him along yeah. the defensive spectrum. You'd wonder. You got, uh, you have a DH a too. standard move. Right. You got a DH, you know, hide his defensive deficiencies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, and, yeah. And Serrano plays a decent right field, so it's not like he even their their big slugger is holding up. Yeah, designated hitter. Yeah, yeah. I think Sheen seemed to be the best, um, and then Hayesbert. Uh Berenger doesn't look too bad as Jake Taylor. Now, a lot of the scenes with him with the mask on, I guess, are Steve Yeager actually. Yep. Uh, so they pretty much some... any time he was he was any any time he was throwing or anything yeah. like that that was Jaeger. Yeah, you see him. You see Behringer make a throw in spring training, and it looks not great. Uh, <laughs> certainly not like a catcher. Uh, right. But the other throws are Jaeger, I guess. So I, I, it, him and Ross. I mean, I'll give Ross. I'll cut him some slack in that he played baseball and he was forty-seven. Yeah, uh, and he does throw a bender. I mean, he could throw a little bit, a little bender. I and guess. he doesn't. He doesn't look terrible out there. Um, he doesn't look like he's throwing hard enough for the major leagues. But yeah, if, but this that, is the 80s if, too. if your form is still okay, if you go back then, and look at a, a, any baseball game from the '80s, like it just doesn't look like guys are throwing hard. At all. <laughs> True enough. <laughs> They're just tossing it up there. Uh, and then yeah, and then Bernstein's uh, Bernstein, and then Bernstein, and then Snipes. I think Snipes is easily the worst out there. Um, <laughs> Uh, although he did, he made the pop-ups look believable. So, yeah. uh, just kind of wrap things up. Why do you think? I mean, we talked about, I guess, why it, it, the movie has been so beloved. I guess because it's it's just so the realism and and uh, just it encompasses all aspects of baseball. Where does it kind of rank on your list of of all time baseball movies? I, I mean, I you know I'd expect it's probably in the top five. Is it is it top number it's, one or it's up there? Um just off the top of my head, especially um, among the movies I've watched recently, it's got to be number one, number two. It's right up there uh, with with Mr. Baseball, which is a movie that I loved as a kid, and I, I was super happy to rewatch a few weeks ago uh, when I started doing the writing and, and realized, hey, this movie holds up pretty well, um, and I can still love this movie. Um, so those two are, are both pretty high up there for me. Um I'm I'm gonna need to. It's been a long time since I watched baseball movies, so I'm I'm looking forward to continuing the the series of on the articles and in the podcast uh, to to just keep watching some baseball movies and and remind myself which ones I love because um, I probably would have said Angels in the Outfield is up there, um, and it's not a bad movie, but it's not good enough to really hold my interest as an adult the way it did as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, the baseball is just not good enough. Uh, and, and, um, you kind of so need, movie... need two divisions. You need like a, a movie for adults division where you have your yeah. major league and that... field of dreams and bull Durham. And then you have a kid division where it's like, okay, angels in the outfield, little big league rookie of the year, that those kind of films. Cause they're really different. Absolutely. And I think, I think that major league and, um, 
and Mr. Baseball are both so high up for me because they're they're just they're happy movies all the way out throughout, even like when there's conflict because they're comedies. Um, so they they make me feel better about life, and then they end on high notes. Um, whereas something like Bull Durham kind of ends on a low note a little bit, um, where yeah, Nuke gets promoted to the big leagues, but um, Crash, you know, is is kind of out as a baseball player, which is kind of a bummer. Um, and then you know, uh, uh, Angels in the Outfield is actually kind of a bummer for me because sure, <laughs> <kids> yeah, movie. <laughs> a- Angels they win the they win the division. They say they win the pennant, whatever. Um, they win the division, but like. Oh, by the way, Tony Danza's going to die. <laughs> and I, I wrote a, I, I can't, did I write about that in, yes. my, in my article? I can't remember. I was like, why, why did you do this to me? Because that's all I can think about yeah. whenever I think about that movie. And that's been true since I was a kid. Like, why? This doesn't add anything to the movie. It just makes me sad. Yeah. Uh, should we mention that there's a sequel to this? <laughs> yeah, we should. I watched the sequel today. Actually, I'm I'm looking forward to either discussing it with you or writing about it. Matthew Lamar actually said it was his favorite baseball or one of his favorite baseball movies. Which yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff to talk about there. <laughs> we'll have to do that for another podcast. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll save that for another pod. Well, hey, it's been a lot of fun talking about Major League with you, and uh, definitely check out Jeremy's reviews. He's got a bunch of them already. Angels in the Outfield, Forty Two. Um, what are some other movies? Um, Mr. Baseball, Mr. Baseball and yep. Bull Durham. Bull Durham, yep. So excellent baseball films, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about those films as well. But uh, in the meantime, thanks thanks so much for coming on and talking about Major League. Thank you. I had a great time. Well, cool. Well, that'll do it for this, us this week. Thank you to our readers and listeners for visiting our site, and we'll talk to you next time. Hey!